0: I do invite you to open your Bibles there to 2 Corinthians chapter five. Those new to your Bible, New Testament, you'll find 2 Corinthians, go to the middle, keep going right. You'll bump into First and Second Corinthians, find chapter five. While you're finding it, I was thinking this week about so many sweet stories of the inbreaking of God's grace in the lives of people in this room members of our church through the years. We're a 15-year-old church. We've had threatening 300 members in that time. Many of those have have moved on uh, as the Lord's taken them to other places. We have 110 members now. And this past week, I was thinking through the salvation testimonies of our various church members. They're all written down. Uh, Every person who's joined the church since the beginning has written out their testimony of, of faith in Jesus, and I've read all of those. I was really moved as I was thinking about today's sermon and moved with joy as I considered multiplied conversion stories of our current members who were reared in Christian homes, godly homes. You were taught the gospel and came to faith in Jesus as a young child. That's the testimony I pray for all of the kids of this church. I was stunned also with Christ's saving power as I remembered reading and hearing stories of of raucous, rebellious teenagers, young adults who had turned from a life of wanton rebellion, people like me, who in their early adulthood threw themselves into the arms of Jesus for forgiveness and for saving mercy. Uh, No joke, no theatrics, no preachy talk. My eyes welled with tears as I considered the inbreaking of God's saving mercy in the lives of some of our members who lived beneath spiritual delusion for decades, who thought that they were saved. They thought they were Christian because they had some superstitious religious experiences years prior but they were void of a true relationship with Christ until later in their life and then my heart almost skipped a beat as I thought about having read and heard the stories of those who were saved late in life after snubbing the prayers and the loving witness of faithful fellow Christians and family members for decades only in their senior years to be captured by the love of Jesus and to be truly born again. Well, the reason I mentioned I was able to reconsider each of the stories that I'm alluding to now is because everyone who pursues covenant membership at this little fledgling church is asked to write out their conversion story. That's part of our membership process Lord willing, we'll talk next week about the question of what is a church. I'll tell some of the process of church membership here, not as a sales pitch, but as what we believe the Bible teaches, something known as regenerate church membership. Well, if that sounds like churchy talk, preacher talk, all that means is we believe the Bible teaches the only people who are eligible. For covenant family life in one of Christ's churches are those who have already come to Christ as his children. Regenerate church membership. You must be born again, you must be saved, you must have a relationship with Jesus, a biblical profession of faith before biblically you're eligible for church membership. So that's this week and, and next week. But for all the variety. In the stories of salvation that I thought about this week among our current and previous church family members, I was mainly struck by the similarity between all the stories. The commonality, the the common denominator was as stunning as it was obvious. Jesus changed my life. In summary, every testimony of all the members of Grace Church could be summed up by our sermon text today, and I invite you to consider the claims of this verse with fresh eyes and with fresh ears. As you ask yourself, not do I understand the words of this sentence, but mainly as you ask yourself, has what this verse says happened to me? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, hear the word of the living God. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. Let's ask the God who wrote that sentence to help us understand it. Dear Father, we ask that you would show us today the most mighty exertion of your power, namely the redemption of sinners. Your word teaches us from first to last that far more mighty than the mighty work that you accomplished in creating the universe, far more mighty than that exertion of power is the salvation of an individual soul you make clear that salvation is to quote your son impossible with man but not with God for all things even human salvation is possible with a God like you thank you father for the gift of salvation all of God none of man thank you for the gift of salvation and for the cost of salvation, your son's lifeblood that was necessary for sinners like us to be saved. So we ask that you would show us what you think about the glorious truth of what it is to be a Christian, and that you would grant the twin gifts of faith and repentance to any who hear this sermon who are not yet one of them. Give us your risen Son, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Three things I wanna try to draw out from this verse, no no fancy outline, it's just the words of the verse. Number one, the therefore. Number two, the two-word location. The phrase, in Christ. And number three, the designation, which is repeated twice in the in the verse, a new creature new things therefore in christ a new creature it's been just over a year since we preached this text from this pulpit it was in our second corinthian sermon series spiritual power in the church that was on may the third 2020 right here we covered a larger territory in that may the third sermon that included this passage under the title ambassadors for christ But today, we just want to zero in on this sentence and ask the question, what is a Christian? And we say around here, just because you get lulled to sleep when you go to church and you listen to blah, 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 blah preaching, uh, we say things that try to jolt us back into reality like, we don't care what you think. The answer to that question is, and better news, we don't care what we think the answer to that question is. So if you're offended that I don't care what you think, be a little encouraged that I don't care what I think. What does God think? Who does God call a Christian? Just that question alone is embedded with the name of his son. Who would God refer to with the name of his son? Christian. It's our second question in a four-part sermon series, as Brian mentioned a moment ago, the series bought with his blood on the doctrine of the church. The reason we're preaching this four-part series now is a break from our Gospel of John sermon series is because this church is in sore need of revitalization Many of us are like the Ephesians, we've lost our first love, we've drifted from Christ. We can't remember the last time we had an intimate heart-to-heart encounter with the risen king of the universe. Some of us are flagging in our covenant commitments. And for what it's worth, we don't think those covenant commitments are extra biblical, just stuff we made up, like the Pharisees making up extra rules, but just basic Christianity. Many of our lives are not reflecting basic Christianity. So we're doing a series on the doctrine of the church, not because we think we got it all down and we just need to kind of dot the I's again, but because we need an inbreaking of the presence of the Holy Spirit in this faith family. So we asked last week, what is the gospel? We're asking this week, what is a Christian? Lord willing, next week, what is a church? And then fourth and finally, what are we supposed to do with all of that? So last week we saw from Scripture the answer to that question, that most fundamental Christian question, what is the gospel? And what we found in summary from God is that the gospel is a message. It is an announcement. It is news. And it is news as good as God. We saw especially that this good news, this gospel according to the scriptures, is that Jesus Christ, the prince of the universe, robed himself in your humanity and mine and died for your crimes against his father. That he was buried dead, lifeless, and three days later, by the all power, the omnipotence of God, he was raised again from the dead as proof to the universe that you're going to stand face to face with him one day and be judged according to him. But the good news is he died for you so that you might be forgiven of your crimes and he rose again to justify you, to make you right with God. He mercy seated God for you. He put his blood on the altar in your place so that you could be clean before God forever. It's the gospel. And today we're seeking to answer, we're seeking the Bible's answer for God's mind on the question, what are people like who've embraced that message? What are people like who belong to that Jesus? What, what is a Christian? So for God's definition, we're going to look at this sentence in 2 Corinthians 5, and I'll give you the definition I'll be working from to answer the question. I'll just give it to you right at the beginning. Here's what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who is in Christ. That's the definition. And we'll seek to expand on it with God's help from his word today. Apart from Christ, there are no Christians. You hear today critiques of so-called Christianity that are under the title. I think the critiques are valid. There's a Christless Christianity that's being masqueraded today as the genuine genuine article. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have any semblance of biblical Christianity. David Dixon, a 16th century pastor, said concerning true Christians and true Christianity, Jesus Christ, quote, is the sum total of saving knowledge. You must have him. That's what verse 17 is all about. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I told you we'll tackle it in three parts. First, the therefore. The opening word of that verse obviously calls us to look back to see what came prior. The so then. And what comes prior to this sentence is nothing short of spectacular. Let your eyes fall on verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this that one died for all, that's Jesus. One died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all. Now, does it mean all people indiscriminately everywhere? Does it mean universalism? Jesus died for everybody, we'll all end up in heaven, maybe spend a little time in purgatory or universality, no matter what religion you're you're adhering to, we're all climbing the same mountain and we'll eventually end up with the same God going on a different pathway. Is that what this verse means? Well, you got to reckon with the next phrase, verse 15, he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. If you don't have his life, then you've not tasted the atoning power of his death. And verse 16 tells us another, therefore, what to do. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. So just to tap into the therefore at the beginning of verse 17, a few comments of verses 14 to 16, which precede it. Verse 14, the reason the love of Christ constrains us, controls us, the reason The heart of Jesus is the controlling motive of the lives of his people. Our modus operandi, our dominating principle in the life of every Christian is because this passage says of who he is and of what he has done. The love of Christ controls us. Now, if You were loved by the person on earth earth that you most wished loved you for those who've been not loved well, by somebody who should have loved you well, or those who wished that they were loved by somebody with whom they were smitten that didn't love you back, your heart would leap. You want to be loved, and that's a good impulse. But if I told you, the most beautiful person in the universe has set his heart's affection on you, that, that he's funneled an infinite ocean in its width, and an infinite ocean in its depth down to your finite life. Would that mean anything to you? The Apostle Paul says in verse 14, that's the dominating principle of my life. Jesus' love controls me. I'm satisfied in the love of Jesus. Jesus. And in verse 15, he explains why. Because he died for me and he rose again on my behalf. For an extended meditation on the wonder of that sentence, I point you again to last week's sermon from Pastor Nathan on what is the gospel. That the God-man, Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the second person of the triune, the eternal God, died on the cross of Calvary. Don't let that become white noise and churchy talk to you. The king of glory took your place. Heaven's potentate, the ruler of the ends of the age laid down his life for you. He did so with an express purpose in view. Namely, it says it in the verse, I'm not making it up, That if you have the electric current of his life flowing through your soul, if you have been united to him by faith, if you believe in the risen Jesus, this passage says, verse 15, he died for you so that you wouldn't live for yourself anymore, but that you would live for him who in your stead died and was raised again. And being united to Christ, having life in him, being controlled by his love, verse 14, means that we have new eyes, verse 16, for all of humanity. The ground's level at the foot of the cross. When Jesus got up from the dead, he redefined how we look at everybody. We did know him according to the flesh and to many people he looked like an ordinary man. But when he rose from the dead, he redefines how we see everybody else. Either you are on your way to eternal bliss beyond description or you are headed for a Christless eternity, eternity more abhorrent than can possibly be put into human words. We don't recognize anybody any longer just as fleshly. We now know because the King of Glory got up from the dead every person is for sure going to be judged by the litmus test of him. In summary, verse 16, once Paul got saved, he started seeing other people through the lens of their relationship with Christ or the lack thereof. He considered his own life as belonging completely to Christ, and that's really what a Christian is. All of life, all for Christ. All of life... All for Christ. Now, I'm not saying, do you think you're good at that? I'm saying, deep inside of you, do you want that? Do you negotiate with your Jesus? All of Christ, some of the time. Or some of Christ, all of the time. Or what about Ephesians chapter 1? All of Christ, all the time. That's the Christian life. That's the therefore in verse 17. But look at the next little phrase where? In Christ. Man, what a prepositional phrase. In Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Spurgeon said, if you look at that phrase, just for a little while, you'll start to realize there's three categories of people. There's those without Christ. There's those who are in Christ. And there's those who one day will be with Christ. To be without Christ is the most miserable condition possible. Even if you live a relatively good life, moderately happy life, pretty pleased with your life. If you're not in Christ, this is as close to heaven as you'll ever get. But if you live a degraded, difficult life, a lot of despair and hardship and challenges, even get fed up with some of the in Christ people at times, but you're in Christ, this is as close to hell as you'll ever get. And we live in the between where the in Christ people will soon be the with Christ people, but the without Christ people will soon be the forever without Christ people. Spurgeon was thinking about this phrase in Christ, and he said, I never heard of any person being in any other man but Christ. He said, we may follow certain leaders and imitate eminent examples, but no man is said in these respects to be in another. You're not in your favorite celebrity or sports figure. Other religions don't talk about being in the deity to whom they're devoted. And Spurgeon said, but according to scripture, we find that all of us are either in one man or in another man. We are either in Adam or we are in Christ. That's why this phrase, in Christ, is the apostle's favorite description of a Christian. That's why I gave the definition at the beginning, a Christian is someone who is in Christ. It's Paul's favorite description of a Christian. This is an an immutable truth In 1 Corinthians, the chapter we were in last week, chapter 15, we find this sentence, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. It's Paul's favorite description of himself. Does Paul ever call himself a Christian? No. But over 160 times, he describes himself this way, in Christ Christ. He only wrote 13 letters. That's quite the percentage of territory. Being in Christ is a dominating theme of the New Testament. It is Christianity 101. It's the definition of a Christian. Only in Christianity will you find converts must fundamentally expressing themselves not as devoted to somebody, not as committed to somebody, not as having made promises to follow somebody, not to be resolved, but in another this is Christianity. So friends, are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? And if so, is it, is it the Christ of the Bible? When Paul speaks of other Christians, being in Christ, what he means is, therefore, you Corinthians, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation, this is what he means. Let's, let's zoom in on in Christ. What, what does Paul mean? He's referring to the supernatural work of regeneration. Now, that sounds like preachy, churchy talk. Bear with me. Christian conversion is a supernatural divine work of the Holy Spirit produced in the heart of man upon hearing the testimony concerning Christ. The Bible teaches that faith in Jesus, Romans 10, 17, comes by hearing the testimony concerning Christ. The gospel, which we heard last Sunday so imminently. If you don't hear the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you cannot believe and be saved. Hebrew, uh, Ephesians 1.13 says, having heard the message of truth of the gospel, you then believed and were saved. If you don't know the gospel, you can't be a Christian. Romans 10.14 says, how will they believe unless someone tells them? You can't believe and be saved if you haven't heard the message concerning salvation, which is the message of the gospel, Jesus, dead for your sins, risen for your justification before God. So when I said conversion is a supernatural divine work of the Holy Spirit produced in the heart of man upon hearing the testimony concerning Christ, this is what I mean, to be in Christ. When the Spirit so works upon a soul that upon hearing the message concerning Christ, You are made sensible of the manifold evil of your sin against God. If you've never seen some semblance of the accuracy, of the horror of your sin, you can't be saved. The reason the gospel is good news is because there's terrible news, there's bad news. You are in opposition by birth and by choice to the God of the universe. So the Spirit makes you sensible of your manifold evil against God. And a Christian is somebody who not only sees how horrible their sin is, so bad How bad must sin be that God didn't send the archangel Gabriel to atone for it? How bad must sin be that God didn't give another nation in in the stead of his people a human sacrifice for other humans, but he gave a divine human sacrifice? How bad must sin be that God's son was killed for your crime against God? It must be some kind of awful such a person beneath Holy Spirit conviction, is made alive from their spiritual deadness. They're regenerated from spiritual death. That's Ephesians 2. That's John 3. That's 1 Peter 1. That's Ezekiel 37. That's Noah and the flood. Being in the ark is the only way you get saved from the wrath to come. And such a person who's under Holy Spirit conviction made alive to see the horror of their crime against God, Ephesians 2, John 3, 1 Peter 1, are also by that self-same spirit given the twin gifts of faith and repentance. You don't have any faith unless the Holy Spirit gives it to you. You don't have any repentance unless the Holy Spirit gives it to you. Ephesians 2, faith is a gift Romans 12 faith is a gift Acts 11:18 repentance is a gift 2 Timothy 2:25 repentance is a gift so when you're made alive by the holy spirit you do what living babies do you breathe and you cry faith is the breath expression of a newborn spiritually alive person that says i received jesus Repentance is the cry of a newborn spiritual life person that says, I turn away from everything for which Jesus died, especially my sin nature. Not just the bad stuff I've done. Yes, I eschew that. God, get it out of my life. But I turn away from the root problem. Not just what I've done. It's who I am. So, a Christian is somebody who's regenerated by the Holy Spirit from spiritual death to spiritual life. They exercise faith in the risen Savior who died for them. They repent from their sin and their treason against God. And that Spirit who made them alive doesn't stay over there. He indwells. The third person of the Trinity, God himself comes to take residence in the life of a true Christian and causes them to thrust themselves helplessly into the almighty arms of the risen Jesus for forgiveness and reconciliation with God. That is Christian conversion. And this is the universal Christian reality. Being born again, being made a new creation in Christ, what I'm talking about. This conversion to Jesus has happened to every single person who has ever become a Christian in all places and all times in human history. All Christians have repented from their lifestyle of sin and have confessed the lordship of Jesus and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead And one glorious day will raise us with him. That's what Paul's talking about when he says, if anybody is in Christ. I told you 160 times, Paul calls himself that. I am in Christ. He can't get away from it, but he calls all Christians that. And he says that you didn't do it because you're better than the person next to you. It happened to you. 1 Corinthians one thirty, but by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 5.14, peace be to all of you who are in Christ. Romans 6.11, even so consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for a select subset, a remnant of humanity, that is those who are In Christ. And nothing, come hell or high water, nothing you can see, nothing that's invisible, not death, not life, not angels, not principalities, nothing here, present, nothing to come, future, no power, no height, no depth, nothing that has ever been created will be able to separate you from the love of God if, Romans 8.39, you are in Christ Jesus, the Lord. Simply put, unless you're in Christ, I love you enough to tell you, you will perish forever. Jesus told the religious leader Nicodemus in no uncertain terms, if you're not born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God, John 3.5, John 3.3. And if you're not born again, Nicodemus, I know you're a religious leader. I know you teach at the synagogue. I know you open the Bible. But if you're not born again, John 3.3, you can't see the kingdom of God, and John 3.5, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. This leads us to our third and final consideration from the text. What is this new creature business? Therefore, because Jesus died and rose again for us, if anyone is in Christ, number three, he's a new creature. What does this mean? Clearly it doesn't mean that you become something altogether unrecognizable. You don't change species when you're placed in Christ. So what does it mean? It means that you're an already partaker of the not yet coming kingdom of the risen King. You have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit Who Paul said in Ephesians is the pledge or the guarantee that you will be part of his new kingdom creation when that time comes. You're new and you're fitted for the newness of the new heavens and the new earth. One commentator said the new heaven and new earth will complete the transformation of believers. It remains our future hope. But for Christians, they are so certain to be fulfilled now, forevermore, that their lives are controlled by this new reality that still awaits them at the consummation. Can I put that in Jordan-esque? Jesus has run away to heaven with your heart. When he takes up residence in you and makes you new, you're united to Christ by faith, he's got your heart. And until you see him face to face, 1 John 3, until you stand before him face to face, 1 Corinthians 13, between now and then, you long to see him. And he's coming back for a select group of people. Hebrews 9, 1 Thessalonians 1, he's coming back for a select group of people, quote God, those who eagerly await him. That's who he's coming back for. So these new creatures in this verse are those who are in Christ by faith, just as he rose bodily, without the ability to die again, Acts 2. So also those who are in him have already foretasted the age to come when we will be fully like him. We will be glorified in his new creation, or to use our friend Spurgeon, we're now in Christ. Really soon, we're going to be with Christ. We're suited for that new age. And those who are in Christ will definitely be there with him. To dwell in the new heavens and the new earth, you need the asbestos covering of the righteousness of Jesus or you will be incinerated if you stand before God. That's what the old things passed away is all about. This is a reality for all Christians as well. The old is gone, and it is being made gone. Old things have passed and are passing away. Christians will continue to battle with sin for the remainder of their earthly lives. But the reason that we battle and not succumb, deny self, take up our cross, follow Christ, is because the death blow to sin and self has already been struck against our carnal, depraved nature, that's the old things have passed away. And God, by the Spirit, is helping us through His Word and the church to put to death the things of sin and to feed the things of the Holy Spirit so that we can grow into the likeness of Christ. The old has passed away. So James Denny said concerning that phrase, the old has passed away, the past was dead to Paul, as dead as Christ on his cross. I love that. New things have come. Then just a word of application. You're a new creation, but verse 17 also says, not only has the old passed away, but it says, new creation means new things have come. I think this is further clarification on that phrase, new creation. New things have come. Old Testament prophets spoke of the Messiah. When he came, he he would do something. Now, Now, go with me here. It's our last point, not just because it's last in the verse, but it's last on purpose of emphasis. New things have come. The Old Testament prophets, hundreds of years before Jesus came, spoke of when the Messiah comes, he will bring in a new age. One day, he's going to fulfill that new age. Hebrews 1 says he's going to fold creation up like a garment, like he did with the cloth in the tomb when he rose from the dead. That was a precursor. One day, he's going to do laundry with all of creation. But the new age, the Old Testament prophets spoke about when the Messiah comes, who we now know is Jesus of Nazareth, Isaiah 42, 9, Isaiah 43, 16 to 21, Isaiah 48, 6, Isaiah 65, 17, Isaiah 66, 22, the prophet Isaiah is saying the Messiah's coming and he's bringing a new age. Isaiah was prophesying about an age that would include the mighty deliverance by God for his people for all time. Why would he be talking about that? Because Israel had rebelled against God so much in the Old Testament and even in Isaiah's day that they even carried captive by Babylon and by Assyria. And for God to bring the people back to the land was an amazing deliverance. Oh, but friends, we saved this for last so that we could say it like this all the deliverances of God in the Old Testament were just a faint shadow of the great deliverance of God in Christ for all those who are Christian. The rescue of Israel from Egypt through the Passover and the Red Sea, the rescue of Israel from Babylon and a return to the promised land, and from Assyria, and from all the pagan nations all looked forward to the coming Messiah. That's what Isaiah is talking about in chapter 42 to 66. When God would rescue us from our greatest enemy, sin, self, and Satan, an age of unending fellowship with our God where we walk with him like Adam did in the cool of the garden without any impediment, but also without any ability to forfeit that union. You see, salvation is better than innocence. Innocence because Adam had the capacity to fall away from that fellowship. But Christians in Christ can never be lost. We will not only have him here and now in Christ, as I mentioned, we'll be with him to glorify and enjoy him forever. That's the new things have come. The age has already broken into this present evil time and God will continue to keep us until that age to come or we're with him forever. So some of you are listening to me say, man, that's what a Christian is. Good night. I'm definitely not one of those. Well, I want to say to some of you, I think you probably are. I don't want to use weakening words if the Holy Spirit's convicting you, but I do know a lot of Christians who battle for assurance. And they hear sermons like this, say, man, if that's a Christian, No hope for me. I wish I were like that. To you, I say, you wouldn't wish that unless the Holy Spirit were already at work in you. You know who doesn't care about this? Non-Christians. I like the way John Newton, author of Amazing Grace and such an eminent follower of Jesus, I like the way he put it. In prayer to the Father, he he said, a new creation, old things pass away, everything become new. He said, Lord God, I confess that I'm not what I should be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I one day will, will be, but by your grace, I give you glory that I'm not what I once was. Do you have that testimony? Has the Lord Jesus taken up residence in your life? If so, there will be a radical change from the inside out as the lordship of Jesus leavened your whole life. You know what that'll look like? Prayer, God's word, and God's people. That'll shape your whole life. And if you don't want to orbit your life around communion with God in prayer, communion with God in his word, and fellowship with God and his people then you don't want Christianity. Stop fooling yourself. Stop kidding yourself. That's what the shape of the Christian life looks like. And oh, by the way, this verse was written to a local church in Corinth. And Paul's telling them, this is what new creation life in Christ looks like. So our application is very simple. And I close. I ask, do you have this testimony? Has the Lord Jesus taken up residence in your life? So the simple application would be, look at verse 17 and see if you agree with God that that's the definition of what a Christian is, somebody who is in Christ, and, and those verses just prior to verse 17, which tell us about the death and resurrection of Jesus and how those who are united to him, those who live Because he died and rose again for us, talking about spiritual life, those who live don't live for themselves anymore, but they live for Jesus, all of Christ, all of life. And and, and you reckon with whether or not you agree with God about those definitions of a Christian. And then just skim a little further and look at the end of the chapter where you find one of the most glorious sentences about the gospel that's ever been uttered from the heart of God to humanity. Verse 21, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is where I close. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just take away your sin, and he did that. What a colossal feat of the Almighty that one man could take away the sins of all God's people by his once-for-all-time sacrifice. That's amazing. But friends, verse 21 teaches us this glorious truth to use big theological categories of double imputation. He not only took your sin, because if that's all he did, you become morally neutral. You're forgiven of your sin, but you're not called to be morally neutral to be right with God. You have to be positively righteous. You can't come into his presence unless I said earlier, you have the asbestos covering of the righteousness of Christ. And if you try to get close to God without Jesus, I promise you, you will be incinerated. Look at verse 21, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, our sin imputed to him, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, the imputation of his righteousness to us. I call that quite the bargain. What a trade. He gets my sin, I get his righteousness. That's what it means to be in Christ. So I mentioned at the beginning of today's sermon. About a variety of conversion stories of our church members, many who were saved as young children, many like me who were saved in their later teen and early adulthood, others who have been saved in the twilight of their lives. And my question for you is do you have the same testimony of all of them? Are you in? Christ because God said that's what a Christian is.